Lord, we give you thanks, as always, for your, your word, and that it would say about us what we need to hear, and about you what is good and great. In Christ's name, amen. Well, um, I'm going to recap a little bit of what I got into last week, since I don't know if anybody was in there, so I'll uh, kind of reintroduce the topic, which is kind of what I intended to do anyway. Um, quick sip of coffee and put that away. Uh, the theme for the class is loss. I titled it Worthless Resumes and Lost Causes, and I did use the phrase lost cause specifically in reference to Southern history and Southern mythology. I'm not going to dwell on that exclusively, but I think it's a neat, a neat lead-in. Um, and so what I was interested in was how we respond and how we cope when we placed our trust in ideals and in institutions and in accomplishments and um, patterns of living and habits that ultimately fail us, that don't do what they say they're going to do, that they don't accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish. When there's been a, a violation or a breach of trust and we're kind of left, left holding, um, left holding a, a bill of goods, it's not worth a whole lot. And, and how do we handle that uh, in, in the meantime? And ultimately, why that's a good thing, which is not really what I'll get into today, but towards the end, why that's a good thing, and even tie that in a little bit to Easter and to the resurrection, and how uh, in the middle of all that loss, we, we see uh, God's mercy and God's grace and God's glory um, rising above, above our, our own problems. And, and so, uh, one of the things I said last week was I defined loss as something that takes place with a pretty hard break, not something gradual. Um, it's, it's something that, that happens that we always, can't always see coming. I, one thing I, I talk about, and we'll say more about this in a minute, is maybe losing a war or, or um, some big event that happens where we've gone from point A to point B. We kind of crossed the Rubicon. And, and not only are we not going back, there's really no way we could. Um, in, in a way, this will happen with death, although we, at some intuitive level, know that death is coming you know, one way or another, and ultimately we, we may be able to look, back, look backwards and say that was bound to happen. Um, but that would be part of it a little bit. Um, as I said then, and I'll repeat, I do kind of make a distinction between this sort of loss uh, and nostalgia. And now when I talk about um, you know, the, the South losing the Civil War or when I talk about college football, which I'll get into in a little while, uh, there is certainly a sense of nostalgia there. But we can... We can also have the burdens of nostalgia when, in fact, nothing has actually changed. Uh, I made the comparison last week to, you know, sometime between the ages of 12 and 18, the 4th of July may change from your perspective, but materially, nothing has changed. All, you know, everybody in the family's at the lake house, the boat's still there, the barbecue's still there, the watermelon's still there, you still go skiing, the sun still, you know, rises in the morning and sets in the evening, the fireworks are great, and your experience has changed, and that's, that's just more on you, and not that that's not deeply significant, but I, I do want to talk about the you know, externalities that we've trusted in that somehow have collapsed. Uh, a couple of things that came up last week that, that were, I think, pretty good conversation pieces. And somebody mentioned changes in technology. And it's really easy, and, and fortunately I think our conversations here at the Advent don't drift in this direction, but it's really easy to talk about technology uh, and, and have a, an approach of, oh, you know, those darn kids and their newfangled machines that ultimately I think is... is uh, it doesn't accomplish much because, in reality, technological changes really pull the rug out from underneath us, and we find that a lot of the things that we thought we would be able to accomplish and had every reason to believe we could accomplish 
then aren't accomplished because something completely outside of us has, has shifted in a way that we couldn't have foreseen. Um, and how that relates to work, uh, somebody made a, made a really insightful comment that it's very, very difficult to trust that your work will be there for you five or ten years down the road. And in the meantime, it's difficult to find any meaning or accomplishment in your work when, again, it's constantly changing. Uh, obviously, we all like jobs that have challenges and, and things that are, that are different from week to week, but when the very nature of the work changes, it's very, very difficult to adapt, despite your best efforts. Uh, even mentioned, you know, obviously that all tied into economic change, and, and I made a comment, um, I kind of made the point that um, politics aside, one thing, and I'm not very, I'll lay my cards on the table here, I'm not very sympathetic with the Occupy Wall Street movement, except in one key way for those people who were told to follow certain courses of study, um, work hard academically, go to college, get a degree, and at the end of the rainbow, there will be a pot of gold which I'm willing to believe a lot of young people were told, anybody between the age of 20 to 35, a lot of people were told that by high school teachers, high school counselors, and I say that as a high school teacher, so Lord knows what kind of bad advice I'm giving my own students. Um, they're going to hear this and you know, play this back for me, and, and I'm going to get in trouble. Um, but despite all of the things they were told by teachers and counselors and parents and professors and advisors at college, you know, now they're managing a Starbucks instead of you know, fill in the blank. And there was a definite breach of trust. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't malicious. But it was something that, that happened that pulled the rug out from underneath them. And so there's a very real issue there of, of what, do you, what do you do next? Okay? And I think for, for, for a Christian, you know, how does the gospel factor into that aside from just some kind of, kind of Hallmark card, Joel Osteen kind of answer that may in fact mean something for about five minutes, but the longer it goes, the harder it is to hang on to that. And so, where does the gospel kind of factor into that? And so, um, that's, that's long term, that, that's kind of where, where I'm angling. I did pick a couple of examples uh, from media last week. Um, if you've seen the TV show Downton Abbey, I think that is a show that is, that is based in large part on change and in a certain sense on loss because as the show moves from the Victorian period into the modern era, you have um, rapidly changing socioeconomic patterns. Um, the, the nature of English government changes, and it'd be interesting to see if the show explores that. I imagine they will as time goes on. Um, you have changing you know, political tendencies, changing sexual ethics, and all of these characters who were raised in one world, in a, in, 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 for Mrs., they were, they were characters who were literally born on the manner in which the show is based, and they find that that is rapidly changing. I won't say much about it because I don't want to ruin the show if you've not seen it. I would suggest you know, watching it because this is, this is a very prevalent th theme. And it's, it's a show that's kind of enjoying its cultural moment right now anyway. And, and so I think there's a lot, a lot there aside from the romance, aside from the intrigue and the mystery that, that can go on within the show. There is a definite tension as, uh, as the characters in the world they live in move from one world that existed in 1912 when the show starts to, I guess it's now about 1919 or 1920 in the show's timeline, and there's a very serious, uh, very, very serious shift. And, and there's a lot of confusion among the characters where, where they don't really know what to do now, uh, or they think they know what to do, and what they think they ought to do may or may not work very well because they're, they're going into the unknown because, again, the world that they thought they lived in is, is gone. Um, Played around with a book last week. I've got a copy. Um, 
hear uh, Confederates in the Attic, which is a really, really great nonfiction narrative about um, the South's fascination with the Civil War, um, and particularly Civil War reenactors or Gone with the Wind reenactments. Um, it's a great book, national bestseller. Um, the guy who wrote it, Tony Horowitz, is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, war reporter, so it's, it's, a, it's an easy read, really, um, really rewarding. And the theme in the book is, is how this whole region of the country, and he doesn't, he, he kind of crosses over socioeconomic boundaries. He goes to various regions of the country. He has a very interesting experience um, in, in, uh, in Selma, Alabama. Uh, you know, how is this part of the country coping? You know, this is written in the 90s with, with the loss of a war that took place 130 years prior to when the book was written. And some of it's just kind of whimsical and funny. Uh, others of it quite disturbing. And, and, and so you, you see this being played out in a really serious way. Uh, there's a chapter in particular uh, where he, he goes to Shelby Foote's home in Memphis and interviews Foote, the great Civil War historian. And, and Foote explains in, in generous ways, um, and, and to a certain extent politically incorrect ways, why the South was and remains hung up on the war, because uh, you know, it's fought in your own backyard. You lost. You, know, you remember it because you lost it. it. It would have been easy to move on if you'd won. Um, and, and so he, he, he plays around with that, and there's a lot to be, a lot to be said. Uh, one other thing I mentioned, this is a, a quick video clip we'll watch here in just a second. Um, really great record that came out last year um, by an English artist named P.J. Harvey. Won the, uh, the, the British Grammy Award, what's called the Mercury Prize. It's an album called Let England Shake. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's a concept album based, again, on World War I and the, the shift in, in personality in England, how... Uh, the country went from the pastoral, um, very agrarian society, uh, very similar to the Shire and Lord of the Rings, to something else, um, an early version of whatever it is today. And, of course, lots of old England is still there, but there's very much a sense of, um, of loss as we went from one thing to something else. A lot of songs written, um, certainly written from the artist's perspective, but you, you can see where she's trying to get in the head maybe of a young man sitting in a trench in, in Belgium or France in 1917 wanting to go back to something, and either he never makes it, uh, or when he makes it back, he finds that the world he left is no longer there, that things have changed, uh, that things are different. And all of that uh, will lead us to, to the scriptures where Paul is going to look back and say that he had to lose everything that he had in order to gain Christ. And I'll play around with that idea a little bit and, and see how that, how that works in our life. But uh, real quick, this is about a two-and-a-half-minute uh, two and a half minute clip, but it, it's, it's a music video. The, um, if you like this, I'll, I'll go ahead and say the, the, um, the album has a video for each song. They're available on, on YouTube and a couple other spots on the, on the Internet. And um, they're all done by a famous war photographer. I didn't know this famous, so I don't want to sound like I have a lot of prior knowledge to that. But uh, somebody who turns out is, is pretty well known for his war photography. And so um, interesting videos. And, and again, the theme here is, is she, she's writing about um, take me back to old England, to... Um, to a place where, it, yes, it's damp and gray and dark and dirty, but it's what I know and it's what I love and it's what I remember and it's what formed me and shaped me. And it's what, and it's also something that's not here anymore. And so um, the song is called Last Living Rose. And so we'll, uh, we'll watch this real quick and I'll, I'll grab the lights.
think it's interesting that the last shot was of a church. I'd, I'd forgotten about that. Um, any any thoughts? It's a little vague, admittedly. In your setup, you place the opening and last scene of the skeleton in the museum. All right. <laughs> no, it's it's not. You know, it's it's not. Um, and, and I did that a little bit on purpose. Wanted to, to kind of circle around that for for a little while, um, because I think there's a certain sense in which those, these kinds of losses. And, and I gave an example. I'm giving an example of war there, and, and a little bit in Tony Horowitz's book, something a little bit more comical with with a losing football, either losing a game or the end of the season. Um, you know, these, these sorts of things are, are different. I mean, you know, not all of us lived through a dramatic war, you know, loss of a war. Um, uh, Horowitz quotes Shelby Foote, where, um, in fact, I'll read this real quick. It's just, it's really, really short. How did the experience of defeat define the post-war South? He asked Shelby Foote, and Foote says, it gave us a sense of tragedy, which the rest of the nation lacks. In the movie Patton, the general talks about how we Americans have never lost a war. Well, Patton's own grandfather was in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. He damn well lost a war. Um, and so the, the tragedy and the, and the loss, can, you know, it, it's going to vary. It's going to be different. Um, and it's something that we don't always define. It's not something you can always specifically quantify and make sense to everybody else. Um, there was a conversation this week about a football player on Alabama's team, practice, spring practice piano Friday, who was with the team but suspended and... Um, there were a lot of kind of comments on the internet of, oh, this kid's just blown his chance, we're better off without him, good riddance. And, and there were a few comments, and admittedly this was kind of my thought, was, you know, here's an ultra-talented kid who knows he's very talented. I think it's deeply significant if he somehow fails at this, because he's going to know that eventually. He should be pitied, really, because on one hand he either is completely blind to what he's giving up and his own, you know, stupidity, or he's fully aware of it and can't deal with it, in which case he should be pitied even more because he knows he's kind of stuck in this quicksand of his own making and he can't get out of it. Um, and so that's all going to be a little bit, a little bit different. Um, yeah. Well, this, the, the scripture passage uh, that it kinda, I'd kind of connected with this uh, was, was Paul's letter to the Philippians where, you know, I'll, let me, well, I'll just go ahead and read the passage then kind of go with it from there. This is the first 11 verses uh, of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and to say for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I think oftentimes we hear these verses in a very, you know, to use a word we like to use here, a very law-driven sense. And that Paul came to Jesus, or Jesus came to Paul, and then Paul had to lose things. Jesus came along and now Paul had to stop doing things. Um, and consequently, it's preached in that same way, that when you come to Jesus, you have to either start doing things or stop doing things. Oh, in a sense, that's true. I mean, Paul came to Christ. He had to stop stoning other believers. Uh, and in our own sense, we, we, can, we can, can agree that to one degree or another, if someone comes to faith, that it is likely that they're going to want to go to church more or read the scriptures more, or they may stop doing whatever bad thing it is they're doing. Maybe somehow, some way, anytime you want to define that, it always brings up some sticky issues. But there, there's probably some truth to that. Where I, I find this passage to be more meaningful is noting that Paul had wrapped up a very serious identity in everything he had done and everything he was born into. All right, and so you know he was you know he he couldn't help the fact that he was born on you know into a certain tribe that he was circumcised and so forth. I mean that that, that was done to him. He but he, he certainly prided himself on that. All of his accomplishments of education and morality. He prided himself on those things. And what he, what, it, what, what he came to find out is that to the extent that he did those things to merit God's favor, to gain equality with God, to gain um, any kind of entrance into conversation with God, he found that in light of Christ, those things were now worthless. It wasn't even a case of he decided they were worthless is that they were, he, he kind of looks back on them, and it, it's kind of like the, uh, the cashmere sweater that George gave to Elaine on Seinfeld that had the red dot on it. Um, oh, that would have been a good episode to watch. Uh, he found that, that was compl- all of these things had lost their value. Um, and where I would tie that back in to a loss that occurs to us in ways we can't quite, or ways we can see, um, the South being defeated in a war, is that, what the reason those things matter to us is because we've hinged our success on those things. When they fail, we fail. I mean, the, part of the reason the South lost, you know, I say this, I mean, you know, living here in the South, part of the, the issue there was that there was an extreme trust that whatever ideals you were taking into war would see you through to the other side and help you be successful. And when they failed, you felt that you had failed as well because all of the values that you had propagated, that you had believed in, that you had held on to, they didn't work. And so it wasn't just a case of we collectively failed. It was that you felt like a failure as well. And, um, and so all of that identity that we've got wrapped up in our own accomplishments and our own achievements and our own ideals, we're going to have to count them as loss anyway in light of Christ. You know, Paul had not really reached the end of his road, but I made the point last week, we don't really have a picture of Paul having an existential crisis where he's pulling his hair out and roaming the streets and trying to figure out who he is. Instead, it just it happens all of a sudden in this really bright, brutal moment on the road to Damascus. And 
then and there he sees the, the worthlessness of, of what he's done. Um, and as, as quick and as blunt as all that is, I think we could be grateful for that in our own lives. I say that and pray that those things actually don't happen. Um, but we, we can see that in, in the, that in that moment he realized the worthlessness uh, of all of this. And looking backwards after some sort of loss has occurred, um, therein we can, can see something similar to what Paul has, that all of these things that, that we had tied up um, ourselves in, that we'd given so much credit to, these little gods, they're ulti- they, that they failed. And that um, our, our hope and our trust ultimately has to be, to be somewhere else. I've got a couple of examples, but uh, any, any comments or thoughts at this point? Yeah. That's an interesting point, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, there's there's obviously a movement with a foot within Birmingham, and it's it's a well-intentioned movement to for revitalization and, and development. And obviously, there's, we've seen a lot of that just a few blocks from here, um, which has been quite good. But I remember several months ago, there was an editorial, uh, one of the staff writers at Black and White, where they, they talked about they'd been at an event. It was either maybe at Railroad Park or maybe at some of the, the galleries along Second Avenue North. So this was it was all very nice. Everybody there was was either very um, well-dressed and pretty or they were very hip and cool, one of the two, or probably some marriage of the two, maybe literally a marriage of the two. And it was great, and we had a good time, and, you know, we, we all had our, um, you know, we are all enjoying the music and the art and the, and the atmosphere. And then I walked out on the sidewalk, and I kind of looked to my left and looked to my right, and I thought, this is really nice, but five blocks in any direction, especially to the east or the west, it's a nightmare. And there's that kind of tension where then the person writing this said, I, would, I want to see all of this get better. Uh, but I'm not sure how. And he said, because, you know, all, you know, you've got this nice little core area, and it's very optimistic and it's very positive. But outside of that, then what? Well, I mean, that's true in, in other contexts. If you have enough money, you can insulate yourself from change quite a bit. Right. 
and, well. and that was the subtext. Is that the, you know, this, this whole party was a very, if you've seen the website, it's very stuff white people like. You know, and, and I'm guilty as charged and all that because I, you know, I like those restaurants. I like those, those art galleries. I, you know, I read those magazines. But you know, it, there's that, that kind of voice in the back of your head that this is not going to work. And it's not a negative voice in the sense of just trying to you know, be negative for the sake of being negative. It's a voice of truth that says, you know, that's that kind of nagging doubt that says this, there's a problem here. And it's not one that's easily resolved. Important it is to remember, just to remember, period. To remember that, you know, even if we were optimistic about the founding of Birmingham in 1872, to remember what it was like seven years previous, in 1865, for Paul, who never seemed to forget who he was, so that who he, who he is, you know, at all the more. You know, mm. it seems that memory is so important. Right. You know, somewhere there's a Right. Very Ash Wednesday. Very Ash Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, nostalgia is a corruption of memory. You know, that you indeed because it's it's a glazing over of the reality of yeah. what the past was. Right. Home seems so nice until you actually go back. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. When you got maybe two days max before Right. There's a um I remember why I left. <laughs> during I guess it was last year, and it seems like so long ago, but when the Republican primary season started when I was 12, um, you know, a very, very, this is the longest primary season ever, uh, I was reading, it was, it was either on Twitter or a blog, I remember it was in some feed that was being constantly updated, uh, the editor of Commentary, which, and I think this is an interesting perspective, and this is political inside baseball, but that's a magazine that started out as a new left commentary, commentary um, which is now very much conservative, but the, the editor is the son of, of one of the founding editors who himself was an early socialist turned conservative. So he has kind of an interesting perspective here. And this is a guy who worked in the Reagan White House. And he said to all of his friends who were looking for the next Reagan, he said, nostalgia is a cruel mistress. And I found myself using that phrase probably. I like it so much, I, I use it when it's probably not appropriate. But, um, and I said I was trying to avoid nostalgia, but it, it all fits. I mean, it, it all bleeds together that you look backwards and you find that it's, you know, it's it's not a pretty place. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to, to to reminisce about the old South, and and you know, I suppose if you're, you know, if you are sitting on a plantation, you know, drinking sweet tea all day, it's it's great. Yeah. Um, if you're living in a shack in North Carolina, not so much. Yeah. You know, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're living on potatoes, yeah. I mean, no. Right. And you can see, you know, their, their sort of common ancestry. Yeah. It, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective as what what he's reaching back for. Right. Of course, Percy, did he grow up on a golf course in Birmingham? For a little while, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not exactly the agrarian South. Right. <laughs> no, we, but, uh, but, you know, if you go back to, the, you know, their grandfather, Senator Percy, you know, all the, all the issues they had. Shelby Foote actually came to Tony Davis's house 
where was it Walter's cousin or brother, I forget, that lived there that committed suicide. His dad committed suicide while he lived in Birmingham. Was that yeah? Yeah. Uh, but wanted just to spend an hour in the attic where he committed suicide. Correct. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, just. Yeah. You know, he's okay. looking, you know, he's trying to grab that connection. Right. Well, in in, in the um, in the last gentleman, and I know for some reason I always thought when I first read it, I always saw him in Atlanta because I don't I don't really like Atlanta for some reason I don't know why. Um, maybe it's a Birmingham inferiority complex, but um, the the experience growing up on the golf course in Birmingham, he totally lampoons that in the last gentleman because he he comes and stays with a family right next to a golf course and drives about an hour south to go to school every day, presumably Tuscaloosa, which as a graduate makes me feel great. Um, but he totally lampoons Birmingham and that. And Percy's such an interesting figure because he totally mocks the old South, but he thinks the new South's full of garbage too. And so, I don't know what his good idea was in the meantime. Maybe they're not driving out west to Santa Fe and living in the desert for a little while. Um, but two quick, two quick examples I think kind of reinforce this in a range short on time. Um, Keller had a neat passage in, in *The Reason for God*, which um, that's obviously it's obviously a good book for, for I think. Um, but this was, this was just really interesting. Uh, as a pastor at my first church in Hopewell, Virginia, I found myself counseling two different women, both of whom were married, both of whom had husbands who were poor fathers, and both of whom had teenage sons who were beginning to get in trouble in school and with the law. Both of the women were angry at their husbands. I advised them and talked, among other things, about the problems of unresolved bitterness and the importance of forgiveness. Both women agreed and sought to forgive. However, the woman who had the worst husband I think this is important, who was the least religious, was able to forgive. The other woman was not. This puzzled me for months until one day the unforgiving woman blurted out, well, if my son goes down the drain, then my whole life will have been a failure. She had centered her life on her son's success and happiness. That's why she couldn't forgive. And so, again, there's that unwillingness there to embrace loss. And again, as Paul said, you know, Difficult as it was, and I mean, you're talking about your kid. I mean, you know, today's my three-year-old's birthday. I can't wrap my head around the ability to, to say, I'm going to count how I've raised this child. You know, I'm going to put that in the walls column. Um, but ultimately, in doing so, she, you know, there's a, there's a flip side of that, and the, the, the ability there to, to further embrace the gospel. Um, and that forgiveness to her husband and to her son would, be, um, would ultimately be a step towards um, reconciliation and, and, a, and a better future. Well, one, one more comical example, kind of, we're de desperately running short on time. Uh, Warren St. John's book on, on college fandom, Rammer Jamber Yellowhammer, which is a fantastic read, even if you're not an Alabama fan, although I can't imagine reading it from any other perspective. Um, this is his epilogue after following the team around for the 1999 season. We'll come back to this next week. In the end, I didn't come up with anything so pat as to amount to advice about how to be an enlightened fan. But I've certainly come to understand better how the bargain works and what I'm willing to put down to have access to it. I don't imagine, for instance, that I will forego a much-needed heart transplant just to go to a football game, though I might consider postponing surgery until, say, Sunday, with the hope that I might be recovered enough to watch a game on television the following Saturday. One simple truth I've come upon is that the more you immerse yourself and identify with the team, the higher the payoff of a win and the greater the cost of a loss. Getting an RV and going to every game, to put it mildly, amounts to upping the ante. I was an obsessed Alabama fan to begin with, but I became even more obsessed when I joined the RV scene. The Louisiana Tech loss early in the season 
was as dismal a loss as I'd experienced since childhood, and the winds against Auburn and Florida supremely gleeful. He kind of goes on, goes on from there and describes a few more things. However a, fan has, however, a fan has come to immersion, whether online or in a parking lot, the equation for the emotional consequences of winning and losing is remarkably perilous. Um, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow uh, as, a, as a devoted fan, um, specifically of Alabama, but just across the board. Um, that and, and I don't want in any way this to be again a, a message of laws that don't immerse yourself in blank because we're going to you're you're going to replace one false god with another. I mean the the the, the, the quote and Keller loves this. The, the, I think it was the, the Calvin quote about our hearts are idol making factories. Give up trying not to do it because we're going to do it. You know if it's not one thing it's something else. Uh, and in fact, accept that by God's common grace that maybe the thing you're, you're into is okay. Maybe tone it down a notch. But it's probably, you know, more often than not, the thing you're into is perfectly all right. But know that ultimately it's, it's a losing effort. That, um, you know, uh, that, that whatever you, you've immersed yourself in, ultimately you're going to have to, you're going to let that go. Um, and you know, maybe it, maybe it's a prioritization of saying, well, you know, my family's going to come before football or come in front of hunting or golf. Um, but even the family at some point will, will have to, you'll, you'll reckon that with the gospel, difficult as, it, as it'll be. Um, again, I say that as a very young father um, who's, who's not really honed his chops as far as that's concerned. But there's, there's, a, there's a tension there that, that we're going to always have these, these things in our life that we're going to trust in and we're going to depend on. And that ultimately they are going to fail us, and that the gospel is above that. Um, Paul Walker said something great, and this is—I'll kind of leave it here—and and this will be a lead-in for next week uh, at the Mockingbird Conference back in back in October, where he said, um, "If the resurrection isn't true, then you're only as good as the last business deal you had, or the last great paper you wrote, or the last house you sold, or your last good kid, or the last game you won, or the game your team won." And you know, we, we hear Paul's. Paul's phrase in Romans about if, if the resurrection is not true, then we're, we're to be pitied. And not because we got up early on a Sunday morning, or not because we come to church on, you know, for a Lent service or, or whatever, but we're, to, we're pitied because we actually don't have any hope beyond what's here and now. Um, and some days that might not seem like a big deal. Most days that's a terrible deal. Um, and ultimately it's, 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 it's a losing effort. And so um, that's just one uh, well, obviously, the gospel applies in numerous other ways, but I think that's one way in which the gospel is incredibly potent and incredibly powerful. So, probably hammer that point a little bit more next week. Um, J.D. Salinger, uh, Franny and Zooey, uh, and more more football, and then wrap it up in two weeks. So, thanks for coming. I appreciate it, and I'll, I'll close this with a with a prayer. Um, Lord, we thank you that you are permanent and you are everlasting. That the gospel is true, and that when everything else fails, you are. Um, ever-present and ever-powerful. In Christ's name, amen. amen.